to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trend, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the March 2021 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. Uh, As you know, uh, I am Christian Cisan, and I'm feeling a little bit of a St. Patrick's Day vibe, uh, hence my attire today. My guest today is uh, my partner, uh, Timothy Kane. Uh, Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So... Uh, if anybody is super loyal uh, to this program, and I don't know if anybody gets to that level other than maybe uh, next of kin to me, uh, we know that uh, Mr. Kane has had a prior appearance on the show. We actually talked about his uh, previous experience on, I guess, what we would call the dark side, his experience as a claimant attorney. Tim, do you remember anything about that podcast? It was, it was uh, a few years ago. Uh, wow, time flies. No, I, I mean, uh, I remember it was a good time. Um, uh, yeah, I think we uh, covered a lot of uh, interesting stuff. I recommend everyone goes back and uh, listens to that one again. I'm sure it was great. <laughs> yeah, no, I thought it was a good conversation because we basically built, you know, this narrative of you know, what we expect a claimant's attorney uh, to argue, what they're looking for in a particular case. And uh, you were able to kind of use your experience on that side of the aisle and how that's shaped, you know, your uh, hopefully better experience as a defense attorney here with us. But today we're going to talk about uh, a COVID-19 board panel decision. And one of the reasons that uh, I have Tim on today is because he is a very experienced litigator, especially with uh, COVID-19. So maybe that's the best place to start, Tim. Uh, We're about a year into this. And you've seen uh, really the gamut of, of these types of claims. You know, your uh, short-term exposures to death claims, to occupational exposures. Uh, any feedback initially from your end as to you know, what it's looking like uh, from your perspective? Sure, yeah. Well, so I think the one of the most striking things to me is that it's, uh, it's novel litigation. Um, in a sense, right? This is a, a new illness. Certainly the board has seen uh, infectious disease cases in the past, and there's some case law to draw from, but it just seems like this is being handled a little bit differently from the, the prior case law, and it's evolving. And as I think as we expected, um, you know, the the what happens on the trial level is what most of what we've seen so far. Some cases have come down uh, at the board panel level, I don't know if there's any full board decisions yet, and I don't think there's any, you know, cases with the actual courts. But I, you know, I think we've been, been expecting all along that the case, these cases, are going to continue to evolve as they get up into the appeal levels. Um, and uh, so that's what's been striking to me, even even at the board level, right at the very beginning, uh, the, the standard for PFME, which I think you want to get into in this discussion, um, which is kind of you know the, the standard that we've been operating on for for many years in, in a whole variety of cases seems to have evolved um, 
into a uh, standard that's much more favorable for the claimant. So things like that are happening right now. What's that? Big surprise. Big surprise. Uh, the standard that evolves towards the claimant. Uh, well, right. So it's, I mean, and it's, it's something that, um, you know, we have to obviously be aware of and work with and advise our clients of um, kind of as it evolves. So it's interesting, um, right? Serious stuff. It's, it's obviously very important to uh, our clients. It's important to the claimants who are making these claims. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting and, and uh, you know, a good growth opportunity, I think, for, for us as attorneys to, to see something unfold kind of in real time. That's a good point, right? I mean, we talk about the idea that uh, the nature of COVID-19 and its origin and, and how we get to its uh, effect on any one particular person is so unknown. And certainly there's a public policy uh, you know, position in place to uh, go to the claimant. But when is, when is there not one, right? Um, so... If we get into this board panel decision, what, what I'd like to do is summarize some key excerpts. Uh, it's from January of 2021. The employer is the city of Long Beach. Uh, we did not personally handle this claim. Uh, but what I'd like to do with Tim is to have some back and forth uh, about certain excerpts in this board panel decision and see what he thinks, you know, as, as uh, someone with the, uh, uh, you know, one of the more uh, experienced uh, attorneys, one of the more experienced attorneys in our office, to, to get to the point of, of how that would play out in a litigation context and see what it means for the future. How is there anything we need to change about our COVID litigation style or arguments and, and see how that winds out. So, Tim, like we have uh, someone who's a paramedic and he says that uh, he has a positive COVID-19 test result. Okay, so we'll start there. You have a positive COVID-19 test, and the record that he produces to show that is a combination of a test result that doesn't have his name and an email sent to him from Northwell Laboratories that informed him that antibody test results were positive. Now, the PFME standard has been eradicated to the point of saying that you just need a medical report referencing an injury. But what do you think about this submission by the claimant here? Do we do we have a medical report referencing an injury to the claimant? What, what, are, what are your thoughts there? Well, so I haven't reviewed the, the email that this uh, claimant received, um, but I, I presume it wasn't signed by a doctor right? I presume it was a form letter of some sort from this testing facility. Um, I'm not certain about that, but, um, you know, in terms of the, the uh, positive test that didn't have his name on it, I mean, you know, I've, I've made those arguments myself where you have um, an unsigned test page, doesn't necessarily have the person's name on it. Um, you know, in this case, an email, which I would argue is not a medical report, but based on the way these things have been going in, in cases that I've been handling myself and other people that I've spoken to, um, I mean, you can see in this decision, the board found that this is sufficient PFME. Um, obviously, you know, we would argue that it's it's ridiculous. I mean, even a, 
um, even if you assume that the positive test has the claimant's name on it and it's signed by a doctor, you know, I've made the argument that, okay, look, if you have an MRI diagnostic of a knee, for example, that has a torn meniscus and that's it, you know, you would never get past the pre-hearing conference with if that was your only medical evidence because, you know, it's just a torn meniscus or it's just a herniated disc, um, right? Obviously a, a significant medical condition, but um, nothing whatsoever connecting it to the claimant's employment. Um, you know, we've argued a variety of similar fact patterns and it seems like my impression is that the judges have been told, you know, once you see anything indicating COVID-19 positive, that's it. Let them into the party. Yes. Once you see anything with COVID-19, let them in, right? Seems and, like and it. I, 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 would, I would actually agree. I think that's a very interesting argument. You propose to uh, defend PFME because, I mean, t take it the other way around, right? Let, let's say you have a medical report referencing causation to a work injury, but you don't have the claimant's name on that report. Like you said, if that's a knee case, I would actually think that we'd win to have uh, on PFME. I think that the judge would order clarifying PFME of the claimant if the report that he's using for a knee injury doesn't have his or her name on it. So to juxtapose that with a COVID-19 claim where you're just letting everybody into the party just if, once you see COVID-19, it makes it seem like there should be ex extensive legislation or statutes to make this a thing because when the board panel relies on their own regulations for PFME, it actually makes sense for us to have our argument strengthened by comparing it to PFME of an orthopedic injury. But if, if, if what you're saying is true, and I, I agree that's how the board is handling it, you know, it, I, would, I would think that the board needs to come up with specific regulations as to what PFME means for COVID-19 and not just the standard for PFME for an orthopedic injury. Because otherwise, it's a due process issue, issue that employers are, are just losing out on. Right. You know, I have had judges tell me that when I make that objection, they say, well, the claimant does still have the burden ultimately to prove a cause relationship. Um, so that's still there. Right. But it is again, it's just, you know, so the standard is, is that there has to be a medical report referencing an injury. Um, but again, you know, for me, a, a mere diagnostic doesn't doesn't really rise to the, even that level. Um, I mean, okay, yeah, you know, a positive diagnostic test indicates there's a problem, but I feel like I feel like there really should be something more because at that point, we're being directed or the carrier's being directed or the employer to obtain a records review or an IME, and you know, you're you're handing um, your reviewer uh, a positive COVID test and saying, okay, where did this person catch COVID and how? And it's like, how are we really, right? Um, I feel, it seems like there's no real offer of proof on, on the claimant's behalf, but again, uh, it seems to be the case that uh, there's there's a directive to move these things forward, almost you know irrespective of any of those those arguments. Right. Well, I mean, like the directive to to have move it forward, right? That that you mentioned, that's never been made available to employers or even to claimants, right? Uh, it's like this behind the scenes, like you know, you talk about an administrative entity having having the Authority or discretion to uh, to regulate, but it's not doesn't even seem like it's a regula regulation issue. 
they're, they're making it behind some back channel door without uh, providing advance notice of the fact that this is how it's going to be done and then hoping that people don't take it to the appellate division. And I bring that up because in this board panel decision, it says that the board panel notes that the board file contains medical evidence in the form of a positive PCR laboratory test for COVID-19 dated April 16th, 2020. The board panel finds that this evidence clearly satisfies the requirements for PFME as it documents the COVID-19 illness. I would actually say that's incorrect, right? It's not documenting the illness. It's documenting a positive test for an unknown claimant, right? There's, there's no name of the claimant on it. So to even if the claimant has a continuing burden to prove causal relationship, the problem becomes if the claimant doesn't advance anything, a judge is going to look at that at trial two, three, four months later and say, well, I found PFME, so I must have felt that the claimant has, has met his burden. Right? Doesn't that seem like the case? Like the, it's not like the claimant is proving his PFME again at trial. Right. Well, I mean, I suppose in an instance like that, you know, um, that's where our firm's way of handling things, which is uh, single attorney, you know, cradle to grave handling, comes in handy because you can make those arguments. You can say, look, judge, you know, we discussed this at the uh, pre-hearing conference, uh, and make sure that those things are are um, those arguments are made at trial and preserved for appeal. Um, but, you know, certainly in the meantime, you, you know, you would have presumably cross-examined those doctors, um, although not necessarily, right? Um, I've certainly been denied cross-examination of doctors at hospitals or doctors who have done diagnostics because the judge, you know, just went ahead and said, conceded, like, they're not going to know where this person got it. Um, and that creates an appealable issue. Um, so it's just a, it, there's a well, lot the going on. Yeah, the interesting thing here is that, you know, they didn't note positive antibody test in relation to their finding that PFME existed. It was a form of a positive, positive PCR test for COVID-19 that, that they, they say they agreed allowed the claimant to advance past the PFME stage. I mean, I, I don't think that it actually submits to the regulation that they're referring to, especially given uh, your added information as to you know, what a diagnostic test means for PFME in an orthopedic case. Uh, I, 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 I would hope that this employer is going to the appellate division because we're not getting the results that are correct at the board panel level. Like you said, they're, they're just pushing them through because it seems like it's a way to just satisfy public policy interest that hasn't really been given due process notice to the employer. But we'll move on. Uh, I mean, PFME is what it is. Uh, the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, we talk about the claimant satisfying his burden. The claimant did testify uh, in this case. And what happened was the claimant said that he came into contact with about 35 positive COVID-19 patients. He understood the patients to be COVID-19 positive due to the nature of the call. Remember, he's the paramedic, and it was confirmed by interview with the dispatchers. So put yourself, I guess, in a dispatcher's shoes, Tim, right? You get a call uh, for you know, paramedic assistance, likely in the form of a 911 or some kind of an emergency um, call, and the dispatcher relaying information to the paramedic. 
what is the dispatcher saying as far as COVID-19 positive test results? Is the dispatcher seeing reports that says, yes, I have these positive COVID-19 patients that I'm sending you to? Or is he probably saying, I just spoke to someone who called 911. They said that they may have COVID-19. Go check on them. What's more likely? Right. So it seems obvious that it's option two. And again, so this becomes a, uh, a problem of evidence, right? I mean, ba basically, um, again, this is, you know, uh, something that I'm sure uh, people in that position, paramedics, they take take it very seriously. But in terms of, of a legal burden of proof, um, it's, it's really just the claimant's assertion, the claimant's allegation. Like, you know, um, it's, it's and, and even that allegation is that it was people that they believed may have had COVID, right? There's no, doesn't seem to be any actual evidence that any of these people did have, ultimately did have COVID. So, I mean, you know, we've actually seen uh, claims that were um, claims for, for a psychological issue because they were scared, people were scared of being exposed to people with COVID, which is a whole other thing. Um, but, um, you know, in that case, the allegation that they thought someone might have COVID makes a little more sense versus in a case like uh, like this, where the person is actually asserting that they contracted it at work, um, you know, we would certainly make the argument that those medical records need to be produced or some kind of um, objective evidence needs to be produced showing that this worker was in fact exposed to patients that had COVID. Yeah, I, I, mean, I agree with you there. It seems like the the documentary production would be uh, a substantial point of emphasis here. Uh, I, I kind of want to move to the, the board panel's analysis of the testimony because they seem to be asserting this prevalence theory. Now again, prevalence uh, of COVID-19, we'll get into kind of the finer points of just you know, occupational exposure, but uh, the board panel says that the claimant may show that an accident occurred in the course of employment by demonstrating prevalence. Prevalence is evidence of significantly elevated hazards of environmental exposure that are endemic to or in a workplace which demonstrates that the level of exposure is extraordinary. Claimant may demonstrate prevalence through evidence of the nature and extent of work activities which must include significant contact with the public and or coworkers in an area where COVID-19 is prevalent. Public-facing workers and workers in a highly prevalent COVID-19 uh, environment are the workers that can show that the exposure is at such a level of elevated risk as to constitute an extraordinary event. Tough part about this, I'm thinking, is you know what what workforce or what work what work entity or environment would create an employee that may not have exposure to possible COVID-19. Anybody that's working in the office, it seems like can say anything as to where they get, that they get COVID, that their coworkers uh, use the subway or their coworkers went to the grocery store and brought COVID in. So this prevalence idea gives me real problems that uh, it just seems easier and easier, like you said, to let people in. Right. So, I mean, historically, you know, uh, the standard has been that the alleged infectious, you know, 
incident needs to be at a, a time and place that can be specified, right? A discrete event or a discrete series of events. So, you know, my coworker who um, was later known or my, you know, there's, for example, teachers, you know, they catch mumps and it's like, okay, the students, it was shown that the students had uh, this illness and the teacher caught it from them or a prison guard uh, caught it from an inmate who was known to have this disease and they were, they interacted very closely. Um, whereas infectious diseases that were caught through or contracted through normal bodily processes at a time and place which can't be specified historically wouldn't have been compensable under the workers' compensation law, right? So um, especially in New York City back in, in March and April of 2020, this was a illness that was prevalent in the community at large. Um, and I think what the problem we run into is people come into trials, right? At that time in March and April, I mean, it's not like any of these folks were um, being, I don't know, surveilled or anything like that. So they come into trial and they say, listen, I didn't leave the house in all of March. I only went to work and that's it, right? I drove my car, I wore a mat, you know, I, you know they're, they're gonna say they never went to the grocery store, they never went to a gas station, they never went to a restaurant. And this is all, you know, well before even the uh, the mask mandate was in place. These, these are the cases we're, we're still dealing with now. Um, our cases that were before the mask mandate, before people really knew um, what was going on. And, you know, you think to yourself, is it really realistic that they didn't go to a gas station or they didn't go to a restaurant or clothes shopping or a convenience store at any point in all of March? Or live with someone who did. And whereas, you know, likewise, they just basically just, as you were saying earlier, just assert, you know, hey, I had 10 coworkers who had it. They write in the, and, and, you know, seems like the judges are willing to accept that um, as as evidence of, of prevalence. You know, even in the face of, in some instances, employee or employer witness testimony saying, you know, no one in, in, in you know, the employee's department, the claimant's department had the illness. No one who worked, you know, in, in their floor had it, right? That kind of testimony has been basically just pushed aside in some instances in favor of uh, establishing these claims. So um, it certainly seems to be the case that the board uh, judges at the board level are willing to establish these cases and, and based on this decision and some others, this board panel decision, the board panel is, is obviously establishing these now um, with what we would consider questionable fact patterns. So the board, you know, they remanded this case because there were some issues regarding the records review that the uh, self-insured employer produced and you know, whatever happened after that we're not privy to. You know, we hope that certainly cooler heads and, and sounder minds and wisdom prevailed, but we're not going to put that past the workers' compensation law judge or the board itself. We can only use the decisions that are in front of us uh, to move forward and make better arguments, which is our standard here at the firm that you referenced correctly. So as an experienced litigator, Tim, and, and, and looking at how these cases are winding up, you know, what, what would you say is the best uh, way to defend these claims or what, what is the, the single most important thing we need as defense attorneys to hope that we can get a disallowance for one of these claims, get someone out of the party that the board is just letting in without proper ID? Well, you know, that's really put me on the spot here, right? The best one, but I can tell you, you know, some of the things that I think about a lot um, are 
speaking to witnesses, right, employer witnesses, the people who are, are going to testify, and getting the, the facts from them, the information from them, right, getting as much documentary evidence as you can, um, give, given the, um, what are they, the gestation period for this illness, right, if, for example, if, if your claimant is the first person at, you know, a particular employer to have been known to have COVID and then other people came down with it afterwards, you know, there's a question of, okay, if it was prevalent, is this the person who actually brought it into the environment? Um, things like that, right? Or similarly at like a, you know, a place that's, that's public facing or, or, or a nursing home or something. If, if residents came down with it, is it possible that the claimant actually is the vector of transmission rather than having caught it at work? So I think really good communication with the employer and um, making sure that you're, you know, you have multiple conversations with them and, and, and right, you, you know what, what evidence you're working with. If there's documentary evidence that you can rely on, making sure you get that into the file. And uh, also uh, obtaining um, medical records that uh, may not be, the claimant may not volunteer, right? The claimant may go see their primary care doctor and say, oh, you know, I, um, I traveled out of state last week and now I feel ill or something, you know, something that cuts against the theory of, of the claim that they got it at work. So you definitely want to try to make sure you're getting HIPAA releases, you're getting a direction for those records to be produced, or you're subpoenaing those records to see if there is an admission of some other vector of transmission um, so that you have as many facts to work with as you can, as much information as you have, you, you know, that you can uh, get to work with um, to develop the theory of the case. Um, and, and if it makes sense to contest the claimant's claim that, uh, that it happened at work. Well, there you have it, everybody, straight from the source. Uh, you know, the, the development of the record to defeat prevalence by using employer witnesses and uh, production of evidence to show, and I'm going to steal this, right, the vector of transmission is not from employer to claimant. That's a great tool uh, and great terminology that we can use, right, because if the claimant's going to be able to easily prove prevalence, we just need to start poking some holes in their aspect of the claim. Right. By by starting to defeat and refute the little things that add to prevalence, you're adding your argument, uh, at least in my eyes, to defeat the whole idea of prevalence. Right. And, uh, you know, to put that in perspective, uh, it's uh, these cases certainly aren't easy. Uh, we wish good luck to uh, the city of Long Beach uh, and its right. council for that particular claim. Uh, but from any questions like that. Uh, we certainly have a very, very diverse population of COVID-19 claims, many of which are handled by uh, my guest here today, Tim Kane. Uh, so for everybody who's interested, please feel free to contact us for further opinions on the issue. Uh, for Tim Kane, uh, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one.